Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. Thank you for listening to Bluebells Forever podcast. Truly appreciate you listening to this. And we'd love that it is a worldwide community of people that were in the shows, people that are curious about the shows. And it matters to those of us in the show that we preserve this well. And so hearing these stories from the people who lived it is very important than just someone giving a history lesson. So besides the podcast, there is a book that is out on Amazon, which I have taken 84 of the interviews and condensed them down and then included incredibly beautiful photos of these performers in their glory days, as well as set designer and costume designers, wardrobe, singers. There's great stories in this book as well as here in the recording, but if you'd like it as a permanent keepsake on your coffee table, and this book is almost as big as a coffee table, it's huge, and it's because of all the beautiful photos. So that is on amazon.com, and there's a digital version and a print version. So you could look out for that if you'd like to have yours as a keepsake. And also, if you'd like to help the podcast out, it really helps if we get review and rated and then share it with friends. We just want more people to know about us and to have this history live on even after we're long gone. So if you wouldn't mind doing a review on iTunes or Spotify, it would be truly appreciated. And now enjoy this next interview. Every time I do an interview, I meet someone who knows somebody else who says, oh, you should talk to this person or this person about things I didn't even know were things. And so I talked to Luann uh, about her coming on and she told me about this Follies project in Vegas. And I was like, wait, 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 what? I hadn't heard anything about it. And as I was speaking to both of you before, the timing is just so beautiful because of, you know, the Lido in Paris is closing and there are people preserving the history. Like Grant Filippo has the Showgirl Museum in Vegas. Luann with her history with, with the Showgirl Arts, Karen Burns. I'm doing, I've had the podcast. I'm finding other people that are doing similar things. We're writing our stories because we're getting older. <laughs> and, you know, this history is, there's such a big gap now for people to really remember what the Showgirl is. We always feel like we start out with the Showgirl isn't. So Luann told me about Follies coming to Vegas and she said, you've got to talk to these guys. And so, so graciously, you both said yes. So I would love to introduce you and first just talk about like, you know, what you, what you've done up until this point, like what your career path has been. And then we'll talk about how this is coming to be like, like how you said, this has never even been in Vegas. That Follies has never been to Vegas which is really weird, <laughs> especially now we'll talk about what the storyline is. It feels extremely important right now. So David Robinson, would yes. you mind just telling a little bit about yourself and like what, what you do professionally, but also why you would care about showgirls? Uh, well, uh, gosh, we, we moved to Vegas about eight years ago when we just fell in love with it. Um, and Tom and I opened three supper clubs here, the Vegas room and the Nevada room, and then a bistro adjacent as well. And we got to know, we had live performers all the time, and we got to know a lot of the live performers here in Vegas as, as guests uh, at the clubs, as well as performers on our stages. And um, it just kind of cemented a relationship with those folks. Um, and so that came, but kind of became our casting pool when 
you know, we made the decision to do Follies. And when we say Follies, just to clarify, we're talking about the Stephen Sondheim musical. It's the book Broadway musical with a plot and a script. It's not just a Follies review. We always have to explain that here in Vegas because, <laughs> you know, we've been the town for, for Follies reviews for so long. But this is actually the scripted thing. So while there are Follies numbers in it and, and some wonderful Follies numbers in it written by Sondheim, there's also book songs and there's also a plot and and uh, it, it becomes very interesting. So it follows four double dating pals from the Follies days, two guys and two gals who double dated. The gals were roommates while they were showgirls and dancers. And um, there's kind of, you know, they meet at this reunion. And it's for the Weissman Theater, which is being torn down. And the gentleman Weissman is sort of like a, a amalgam of, of Ziegfeld and maybe Don Arden and maybe mm. Jimmy Jackson and, and some of those people who did yearly Follies productions, you know. And so the theater's being torn down and they're having one last reunion and all the performers and showgirls get together for one last hurrah. And during that, you find out, oh, there's some hard feelings and bitter outcomes. And did your life turn out better than my life? And that sort of thing. And 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 so there's, of course, that very Sondheim, you know, thing where they say, you know, it's Ziegfeld meets Freud, you know, kind of things that go on, too. So there's a lot of depth to, to the story. But it, I think it's over 24 songs in the score. It's a huge score. And it's a giant production. And we have 45 in the cast. We have an orchestra of 26 Wow. And we think that there's a total of around 80 folks that are working on this. Oh my gosh. So what are you a director, a writer? Like what, yeah, what director. Is your... yeah, yeah. I've, I've worked as a chef too, actually, but my background's theater. So it's sort of fun to bring it back, you know, with this crowd in this town. Okay. I have so many more questions on that, but I think um, the story part, when I was hearing about, about the theater being torn down, it's, I lived in Vegas in 1979 and I go back every few years and every time like, well, where did that go? Or what, what used to be there? And it's just, you know, we've seen the face of Vegas change and then, you know, the closing of the Lido and shows that used to be there, producers, dancers. So the storyline just feels really tender mm -hmm. when the, it's not just the shows are going away, even the buildings that at least we could go visit. And so I went to the boneyard and the, you know, the neon graveyard in Vegas and just to see those signs and at least they're preserved, but it's sad to see like, this is what lit up the sky and made Vegas so unique. Yeah. And we always joke, like now you go to Vegas and there's no billboards of beautiful showgirls. It's erectile dysfunction and injury <laughs> claims of our lawyers. I'm like, wait, this has lost its glamour. So I think even the, the beautiful and sad image of the actual theater coming down when we've seen things implode in Vegas and go, is there any reverence for the stories inside? Which I want to get back to because the people that tell the stories of the ones that were there before is really beautiful. It's not just the contemporaries telling us the people that live those stories in that theater. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us are going to resonate in a different way seeing that of like my dressing room is no longer there. The way I used to go in the stage door is no longer there. So yeah, that well, part, that got my gut. <laughs> they're planning to tear the trop down right now for a <gasps> ball. Field. Did you not know that? No, that's like one of yes. the last. Oh. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. So it is very current in terms of theme. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, it just keeps happening. Wow. Yeah. So Tom, Michelle, can you tell a little bit, you know, like, 
what you do, how, how you're connected to this and also like your view coming into why this matters. No, I'd be, I'd be happy to. So uh, David and I uh, met each other 27 years ago in New York city. We've been together ever since then. Um, David was working with an, uh, as a VP of an ad agency and I was a vice president of marketing at MTV networks. And to the side of that, we were rabid arts goers, you know, always going out and going to concerts and going in, in particular, in particularly to theater events. So we've always had a passion for theater anyway. And um, I'm after 9-11, we saw one of the towers fall from our apartment on the Upper East Side. Um, You know, there were a lot of people who went into those buildings that day thinking that they knew exactly the way the rest of their life was going to run and they didn't come out. And David and I were both in our early 40s. And I think we then made the decision to say, you know what, you got one shot at this. And maybe we should be even pursuing even more what we really are passionate about. So from that, David went on to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park and became a chef because he had a passion for cooking and hospitality. And I moved uh, into, I became the president of a company called Broadway Inner Circle, which was the first premium ticket company for Broadway. My my bosses were the producers of the producers with Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. And, you know, obviously now premium tickets are uh, just a regular thing on Broadway, but they weren't then. And it stopped a lot of the money going from going to the scalpers pockets in New Jersey and kept it in the hands of the people who created the shows, which is what we wanted. From there, I moved on and in a nutshell, became the head of marketing uh, for the public theater, Shakespeare in the Park. I rebranded that organization. I rebranded the Metropolitan Opera afterwards, then New York City Ballet, then the New York Film Festival. So um, so I have a marketing and branding background, which paired so well with David's when we opened these supper clubs here. And nobody knew that COVID was going to hit, but I, it feels, I think, to both of us, I'm speaking for David at this moment, that this Follies is an amalgam of so many things for us that we love, that we care about. We're really big into Las Vegas history. And this is a this is a moment where it's kind of all where it's all coalescing. And David, do you want to um, maybe David, if you want to mention just for a second about our one patron from our supper club, one 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 of the people who used to come to the shows all the time, who came to us, and this is where the idea of follies here got started because it's never been done here before. So, David, you want to talk about David Simpson and how all that came to be? Sure, sure. So we had a regular at the Supper Club. His name was David Simpson, and he and his wife would come in, just loved the kind of music we were doing and and, and the kind of old school entertainment we were providing. And and he so he we all went for lunch and he said, why has no one ever done a production of Follies in Las Vegas? And we were kind of flabbergasted since it's the preferred address of the show, girl, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah. Um. So we we investigated getting the rights, you know, we met with some people and talked about it and we realized it was a very large cast, but we also realized the talent pool here was so amazing. And we knew that there were a lot of retired, legendary Las Vegas showgirls in town 
that we could use in the production instead of just having actresses play those roles we had the real mccoy you know the, the real article so we have a cast of 12 legendary showgirls two of our showgirls toured with gypsy rose lee oh. one of our showgirls was a fan dancer at the silver slipper when she was 16 with sally rand oh my gosh we have anna bailey who was the first African-American showgirl on the Las Vegas Strip. And she's 97 years young and she's in the production. So, the, and you think and she's 40 years legacy. younger. You would think mm. that Anna's 40 years younger. Um, and, and I also wanted to mention that, because uh, I think it's important, you know, there are a lot of organizations or people that could hypothetically do this production, although a lot of people don't do it because in addition to the cast, you know, the, the, uh, the show, the plot that David mentioned, you also have in this show, a lot of these characters that are coming to this hypothetical reunion also have a younger self. So in the movies, we would just, the screen would get blurry and you'd see somebody younger here. If you have you know, 12 to 18 different principles that are older, they all have a younger self too. So now you've doubled your cast for that. So that's why there are 45 people in the show, um, which makes it more challenging. So one of the things that was really important to me and to David was we want to do this right. This is an amazing piece of theater. It has a huge cult following. There's never been a movie of it. They've talked a lot. But um, it's because they need to do it right, and it's really big. And when we started talking about this, maybe, David, you can speak to David. David was a very good friend of Stephen Sondheim's for four years, four mm. or five years in the mid-'80s. And I think, David, you and Steve talked a lot about Follies. And the reason I mention this is because I know that this production is in incredibly good hands because David's heard it from the master's mouth as to what worked, what didn't, and what his vision was for this piece moving forward. So, David, do you mind talking about that for a second? Yeah, I mean, Steve Sondheim, smartest guy in the room, just really interesting to know and spend time with. And we spent a lot of time one-on-one, so I really got his kind of unvarnished opinions about the musical follies and some of his other scores and things that he wrote. And, and and we spent a lot of time talking about it. And so it kind of enriches the information, I guess we're using in this production, you know, he's passed away, but we're seeing a lot of Renaissance in, in, in Sondheim mm. shows, uh, Sweeney Todd with uh, Josh Groban, or we're seeing a production of Merrily. We roll along with Daniel Radcliffe, or we're seeing a new Pacific overtures in London, so there's really an interest, and I think the audience has almost grown into the intellect of his lyrics and his writing, you know? Uh, I look grown into. I remember because I a dancer that had to sing at auditions, and they always say, Don't do Sondheim unless you're a real singer. Cause I'm like, oh I nope. I I when you said follies, I immediately saw the poster in my mind that I've seen in dance studios. And I really how have I never seen it? I've seen so many musicals. But I don't know if it was like when um, dancing came back. I'm like, I had remembered the poster, but it wasn't like it was coming around and you could catch it next time. It felt, I don't know, Follies, how many people got to see it because I love the poster. And then I remember when I watched it last night, I found on YouTube, like, oh, I know this song. I know this song. I didn't know the story. I just knew there was Follies with no context. And I'm like, how did I never see this? 
but I don't remember oh. it coming through my, through Seattle or anywhere that I would have seen it. And I would have probably had to work really hard to find it. And, and you know uh, what, it's, there, it's the there have been, there have been every once in a while, a new big production will bubble up, but it almost takes a big production because the show is so big. So David, I think originally, I mean, Follies won seven Tony awards uh, when it premiered on Broadway, but David, it never did. Besides going to St. Louis, it really never did a national tour. It just landed mm. in L.A. Right? Because it's so big. Yeah, they took the pretty much the original cast. So the show opened in 1971 at the Winter Garden Theater in New York, and it was directed by Hal Prince. It was co-directed by Michael Bennett, who also oh. choreographed, and he went on, of course, to do Chorus Line and yeah. Girl. And it was. Um, you know, of, of course, the score is by by Steve, and 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 then Bob Avion was the the, the dance uh, assistant for Michael Bennett, and and building a lot of these dance pieces. The show ran 522 performances, but it was so expensive to run because there were so many components to it that it lost its entire investment. And I think at that point, it was the most expensive Broadway musical ever produced. Oh wow! It was. Yeah. yeah. And so it never toured. It really didn't tour, right, David? It just kind of sat down in L.A. It did okay. It didn't do great. Um, and then, as I say, it pops up about every five or six years from Paper Mill Playhouse or the Kennedy Center. And some productions are inspiring and some are not as good. Some are really dark. Um, but mm. this one will be filled with it will be completely reverential to the to the piece. But there's going to be a lot more joy in this. And and Sherry, I also wanted to say that, you know, here's where David mentioned it. But we have we are so lucky because most other productions in the country or in London that do follies, they don't have the luxury of having real showgirls to yeah. be in the show. And we do. That's and, one and thing we, that comes up a lot is how when you see showgirls portrayed, you just go, oh, like those of us like we're watching how they walk, how they stand. And people will mimic it and think they're right. And if you're a showgirl, you just go, oh, like it hurts your heart. So you want to see it done well, because I, I teach showgirl classes and people go, oh, it's this. I'm like, actually, no. Um, and so when you watch someone who's 97 can still do it beautifully, as opposed to, I always bring this up, but the girls on the strip, when you take their picture with them and they're called showgirls, you say, I mean, come up, come up with a new name, just not that. But it does feel as it's going away. And like, you know, I'll teach the showgirl walk, but I'm 64. Like I want to see. You know, we want to pass some of those down, but like, does anyone care? Because there is the statuesque there. We, we talk like, what are the adjectives? We always have to say what we're, we're not strippers. We're not this, but there is this, and it's not aloof because people will do showgirl and they'll look mean. I'm like, no, it's inviting. It's this reverence, this beauty, this goddess, it's but it's not snobby. I it's would a, say it's there's a sophistication to it. And David, um, you know, remember the story about Ursula? Um, who was in the original Broadway? Oh, production. right, right. Uh, uh, Ursula Moshmeyer, I hope I'm saying her name right. Uh, when they were casting for the original production of Follies in 71, Michael Bennett had to fly out to Vegas to find showgirls that were tall enough and then mm. import them back to New York. So I love that tie in that it's kind of, you know, there. It's just, it's, it's so cool. It's so well, cool. So they wanted to do justice in the very beginning, which means a lot because i think when like just portray it like actually no let's bring in the ones who did it and yeah do it well so is this the the period that it's set in is that always the same by director is always set at this like is it the tw 20s that the original and they come back in the 
I'm like thinking that they had the sashes with the year that they were there. So is is the time frame always stay the same? Because the music obviously is within a certain style. Yeah, and the score is what Steve uh, Sondheim would have called pastiche in that he wrote a 20s number and a 30s number and there's a 40s kind of number and a 50s Harold Arlen number. And he sort of adopted a lot of the styles lyrically and musically to sort of tell the story. So he's kind of aping, if you will, some of the things like Sigmund Romberg or or, or uh, Cole Porter and that, and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of time shifting depending on whose story is being told at the moment. You know, some people have more of a vaudeville flair and all of that. So there's quite a shift back and forth it, it, because we flash back to memories. We flash back to ghosts. We flash back to it's like Tom said, if we could fade in and out with a camera, it would be very clear. But on stage, it's an interesting story to tell. Well, um, David, can you can you speak to kind of how you're melding the reality of when we'll call them showgirls eventually came to Vegas because this production, while we will not be changing any lyrics, we won't be changing lines. We're going to set this production on a Vegas theater stage, not mm. a Broadway stage. And well, it's certainly, be certainly a bit this, later, right? This certainly is going to be flavored with a lot of Vegas, this particular production for sure. Um, but yeah, uh, so so this is probably so, so our research has told us the first time I could see some uh, a line that looked like showgirls was maybe around 47 or 48. George Morrow at um, the El Rancho um, had showgirls and they would kind of dance and sing around the headliner. And, mm, and, and that's where nice, it started. Gosh. And then you'd start to see the importation of, you see the Follies Berger, you see uh, Lido de Paris, you start to see the other shows, you know, th that came in in, in in the earlier days and and, and at the Trop as well, you know, the, the, the Follies, yeah. Yeah, and the Bluebells, Miss Bluebell bringing them right over from Paris at the Stardust in 1958. So I've interviewed yes. some of those original cast members of not knowing how it's going to go and how they were received, that they were met by the press all dressed up after flying for two days straight and being like surrounded and how all the celebrities were coming in for this thing. Cause it could have just laid there, but it actually took off and then they had they extended, they were always sold out. And, you know, that was, it's interesting to see how one like Miss Bluebell's style affected something else, but what was there from the Folies yeah. Berger. And I think that we need to give credit to all of those because yes. there's so much history that I love. That's why I'm telling a good story through a musical because I didn't know my own history. I worked for Miss Bluebell, auditioned for her, auditioned for Don Arden, just did the show and didn't pay attention until a few years later. I go to the reunion. That's why I love the setting of yours is a reunion and hearing everybody else's stories and go, wait, who's Miss Bluebell again? And I read her book. I'm like, how did I not know this? And I worked for her. Um, but just to hear her, who influenced her and how it, it spread out. So, um, so Sherry, yeah, so if you're thinking about the timetable, you know, we're kind of, there will be, as David mentioned, there's a little bit of fluidity around the specifics, but think of it this way. If the, if, if hypothetically the follies had been done here in Vegas, just like, just like the ones at the Trop from the late fifties, let's say into the early to mid seventies, this show is supposed to take place about 30 years after that. So you've got now about 30 years later is when these folks are coming back for this reunion before the next day the theater's going to get torn down. So that puts you kind of in the, you know, the 2000s to anywhere from okay. there to 
2010, something like that. Pretty, pretty close to modern day, maybe not exactly there. Well, that's where and, a lot of these reunions started to happen because none of us knew we, where each other was and Facebook and then find out there's a reunion and how I probably would have not cared about it so much when I was, you know, my 30, but now people are coming across, like for Paris, that reunion, we were flying in from everywhere because it mattered to us yeah. and not knowing that the lead was going to close, but just to walk, that's what I loved in that when I watched it last night, walking and seeing like you like people look a little bit different. Your eyes have to adjust that they no longer look like they're 20 years old. But just the, the memories that start to come up by seeing each other, and then you start to tell the stories, and it makes it all like you realize how important it was in your life. So I love the setting that because we will talk about reunions a lot on this podcast because Hello Hollywood has had one, Jubilee's had one. To be in Paris, and even though I didn't work with the Lido in Paris, just to go, this is where things started. And to just know that we had this thing in common, I think it just fired all of us up. The importance of getting together and knowing that those things were beautiful and mattered and hard and how the heck do we get there and what do we do after? So the fact that it's set in a reunion, I know a lot of us really resonate because this has been the last 10 years have been reunions well, that we didn't know were possible. And I'm assuming that over the course of your career, uh, you and your compatriots went to a lot of cast parties. And, you know, Follies in its own way uh, is like a cast party. And, you know, the original Ziegfeld Follies, um, everybody had their moment to shine. So Will Rogers would come on and do 10 minutes of comedy. And then, you know, and then you would have a blues singer come in and can do, if, if blues was available, then do a blues song. Then you'd have the big showgirl parade and then you'd have you know then you'd have fanny bryce do something well interestingly and um david i mean when you david when you look at follies this whole piece as theater is kind of set up like that isn't it where everybody kind of has their moment to shine depending upon whatever their talent is yeah absolutely and, and tom share with her uh, some of the other casting because these are also vegas legends for sure well so speaking of um Speaking of Vegas legends and different kinds of kind of acts that you would see, and by the way, uh, Sherry, who at a cast party or a reunion is not going to want to get up one more time and have their little moment in the sun, right? I mean, <laughs> we're all performers, so mm -hmm. so in ours, uh, we even have Pete Barbuti, who was on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, six, yeah, seven times. Pete is in this show. Um, Bubba Knight, who is Gladys's uh, oldest brother, who was the first Pip. Um, he is in this show, um, legendary, amazing Clint Holmes. He and his wife, Kelly Clinton Holmes, are in this piece as well. Um, we will tell you because um, we're fine with you knowing it, but we just signed an agreement that Andrea McArdle, who was mm -hmm. the original Annie on Broadway and also in Beauty and the Beast for eight years and in Les Mis on Broadway and State Fair. Uh, the original Annie, she is has just joined the company. And guess what she's singing? Broadway Baby. Because she yes! is one. Wow. <laughs> and she will rip the place apart. And uh, and then we have a number of other really talented um, people who are well-known around here. Everybody from people like Linda Woodson to David mentioned Michelle Johnson and Randall Keith, who performed the role of Jean Valjean in Les Mis over 3,000 times, more than anybody. He has an amazing baritone voice, uh, more than anybody on the face of the planet. Um, so it's just this really amazing melange of people along with a 40 uh, along with 12 legendary showgirls and a 26 piece orchestra 
But we have to tell you also another fascinating story. Is that okay? Yes. <laughs> so, so in, 19, in the early 70s, there was a gentleman named Ted Chapin, and his father was Schuyler Chapin, who ran the Metropolitan Opera for about five years. And he was also the cultural uh, head of cultural affairs for New York City in the late 60s for, for a number of years. Well, Ted obviously met a lot of entertainers and performers because of his dad. And Ted went to Connecticut College to study theater. And he uh, met Stephen Sondheim and Hal Prince and Michael Bennett at a dinner one time. And he said, hey, I would love to find a way to work on this show with all of you. If I could be like a production assistant, if I could get my professors at, at, at Connecticut College to agree to it for class credit, could I kind of be a fly on the wall and document all of this stuff from the very first rehearsal all the way through the previews in Boston all the way to New York? He got a yes from them. He got a yes from the college. So he did that, and he was there. Um, he Ted went on to run the Rodgers and Hammerstein organization internationally for 40 years, working directly for uh, Mary Rogers and Alice Hammerstein. So anything having to do with Sound of Music and Carousel and any of the Rodgers and Hammerstein properties, Ted was completely involved in that. So flip forward from 1971 with a show that he loved so much. In 2003, he took his notes and he wrote a book called Everything Was Possible, The Birth of the Musical Follies. It's an award-winning uh, piece. It's available on Amazon. It is... Um, it's not a tell-all. It's really just a, it's a factual journal about what it took to get this show on the road. It's a very seminal theater book. And uh, there's an audio version that was uh, that I think, David, you said was narrated by Jonathan Groff, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah. guess what? So we became friends with Ted and through a bunch of different circumstances. And Ted is coming to this production and for the first time will play Dimitri Weissman, the Ziegfeld character, for the very first time in Follies. 53 years later, it comes full circle. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. This, so there's been a lot of enthusiasm. You didn't have to, like, try to win people over. It was ready. It's like people are like, let's do this. Yeah, it's been a snowball. I mean, the minute you started, you know, initially, you know, a lot of folks do this as a concert version. They'll just do the score and they won't do the script. And it's it's easier that way and people can wear evening clothes and perform and you don't need all the costumes and all the dancing and all of that. But when you take the context, you know, you as you just saw, if you take the context away from some of these songs and lyrics, they lose a little bit of their yeah. effect. You know, it's like you can hear Sin and the Clowns when someone does it in a club act or a lounge. And it's it's nice and it's wonderful. But when you hear it in a little night music, it has a completely different context and meaning. And I, and I think we'll find the same thing with Follies for a lot of people that are discovering it for the first time now. And what a score. Broadway Baby, Losing My Mind, I'm Still Here, Beautiful Girls. I mean, it's just, it's this litany of... Broadway things that have become Broadway standards that people, as David mentioned, have not specifically heard in context, which is really fun. So, oh, by the way, one thing we didn't mention when it comes to showgirls that that there is another piece of this show. It's another layer. David, um, how about talking about the ghosts? Oh well, so yeah, so the theater's haunted. 
you know, so you see the ghosts in the theater and we use sort of in our production, we're using a ghost light. And you all know well, a lot of you know what a ghost light mm -hmm. is right? out at the end of the night. One, so you don't fall in the orchestra pit. And two, because we're all superstitious in the theater and we want to keep the ghosts away. So um, this theater is haunted. So before it gets torn down. So we have these ghostly visages and some of the most gorgeous costumes. We have a diamond girl and a flower girl and a, um, a, a, a pearl girl, you know, and they're just these gorgeous, gorgeous costumes. We have two terrific people. Luann is helping us with costumes for one, and she's really helping us with the authenticity, which is fantastic. And then we have a gal named Brandy Erickson, who has worked for a lot of the Cirque shows. So she's worked for Cirque du Soleil, and she's layering these gorgeous, gorgeous things, which I think are going to be re really, really beautiful that come haunting through the auditorium when we start the overture, you know. And uh, so so for showgirl fans, I, I hope we get it right. We've done a ton of research, <laughs> and we've had a lot of help from... Um, UNLV Special Collections in that library. They have a Kim is amazing. Yeah. Kim, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that was I would say to do the to do this right, because costumes could make this impossible because of you know, it's not just putting on some period pieces. Those costumes have got to be costly, but in the right era. So because it spans, um, because between I watched the video last night and there was like a kind of a tuxedo tap number, which I that kind of think was the younger persons with them. I, I won't give too much away, but like there's different ways costumes can work. But then if you're doing the showgirl, it has to have that. But also the 20s showgirl is different from the 90s showgirl. So I and just wonder that's got to be some research. No. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we do have several eras of showgirls in our legendary showgirl lineup for sure. And, you know, they all have sort of different perspectives, you know. So, yeah, there is a melding of all of that. And I hope we do it right. We've learned, gosh, we've learned, you know, that Las Vegas showgirls don't stand the same way as a New York showgirl. Yeah. You know, things like that, you know, all, all those kinds of details that you don't really know. You know, a harness or a backpack. I didn't know what that was, you know. Oh, yeah. It's its own language of so I'm going packs. to showgirl. I'm going to showgirl university, you know, but it's, <laughs> it's so fun. But I have a lot of really lovely ladies schooling me. So, but it's yeah. it is the reason that people like Luann are so critical to this production because I'll give you just a parallel for me. When I became head of marketing for New York City Ballet, um, I was not a big ballet fan because uh, pr prior I became one, but I was hired not because I was a rabid ballet fan, but because I wasn't one, because the issue was never how do you get people who love the ballet to go to the ballet? It's how do you get the other people to go? <laughs> so I would see these photographs of dancers from photo shoots cross my desk. And I would think that they were the absolutely most beautiful picture. We have to use that one. And then I would check with the dance department, you know, with the with the uh, the other the artistic department. And they were like, we can't use this photo. This dancer's foot is in the wrong position. We will be crucified. So <laughs> that's why for us, it is so important to make sure that we are being truthful, not just to the script and the property. But, yeah, if you're going to do stuff with showgirls in Vegas, guess what? You can't fake that. People will know the difference and you will get called out on it. And we're not doing it right because we don't want to be called out on it. We're doing it right because we want to do it right. Yes. Oh, my God. So what was the casting? And did you do auditions? I know you've got like the leads, but you also have a lot in between. Like, how did that what did that look like? Where do you start and how do you find your people? 
some of both. The fact that we had over 500 performers at our supper clubs really gave us a pool of talent. And I mean, quite frankly, we knew who was stink who were stinkers and who were great to work with and who showed up on time and you yeah. know, all of that, you know, which is key. It's really important when you got 45 people you're paying to wait, you know, um, everyone's got to pull pull their weight. So that really was the beginning of of the casting. And some of the younger characters we had to do auditions for, but we never really had big open cattle calls. So it was really kind of meeting people and word of mouth and going out to coffees and dinners and talking and someone saying, oh, I know someone. And just almost like your podcast, you know, when you get interview guests and, and someone tells you about someone and it, you know, it, 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 it spirals on, you know, but let me, let did... me also, let me also say though, that um, before we started casting it, one of David's many skills is he's great at casting. Like I can say to him, Hey, if there were ever a movie of X, who would you put in that? And I will just say this early on, I'm talking about before we mentioned it to anybody, David said to me at one point, you know who we should get to sing Broadway baby, but we'll never get her because we don't even know how to get in contact with her. Andrea McArdle. Well, guess what? <laughs> she's doing the show. I oh, asked good. him at one point, there's an elderly, or not elderly, older woman um, uh, that, that sings an operatic number with her younger self called one more kiss and David, I think you said, tell, t tell, um, tell Sherry and the listeners who you wanted and what's happened. Yeah. So the voice I kept hearing to play Heidi Schiller, who is sort of the more operatic side of, of the follies, right, um, was Frederica von Stada, um, who performed at the Metropolitan Opera 300 times, La Scala, Covent Garden. I mean, has worked with every great conductor, recorded over 100 recordings. Uh, uh, 12 Grammy nominations. She won one Grammy, just this exquisite voice. And did a lot uh, of theater too, like a little night music and, you know, some. So, so she's done theater too. Yeah. And she's playing Heidi for us here in Vegas. My so God. it's just, I know, it's just, you know, it's like. We pinch ourselves. We oh, really yeah. Do. Oh, yeah. Like what? Maybe it could happen. Because do you, how many of these, did any of the showgirls have to sing? Uh, if like was whatever if they're a lead or if they're like because that could be a thing too because you know a lot of us like we will dance but I had to take voice lessons before I actually could do a musical. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, there's certainly sing along. There's a song called "Beautiful Girls" and that's a big number. It's almost like a a tribute to Irving Berlin's "A Pretty Girl Is Like a Melody." Yeah. You know, very similar in vain to that as a pastiche number. And so, yeah, they all have to sing on that. We've already talked about that, and we did have two people come up and say, "Can I mouth?" <laughs> <laughs> please don't mic me yeah, yeah right right so what were you, what are you looking for when you are casting like when you actually have an audition or someone presents himself because you know we, we've already said like poise and authenticity but like you you seem like you've got some choices of who you can put in there and it's a big cast and we want it to match so what are the things that you're looking for for the Obviously, for the principals, there's one thing, but for the the rest of the cast as showgirls, like you've now I learned what it means, what you're looking for. But you, as a director, or knowing how the whole thing has to come together, there has to be. Yeah, I think something. We were, we were looking at the diversity too, you know, and and, and maybe several eras represented. You know, in terms of, are we talking about the legendary showgirls? 
pretty much or, or just overall casting? Just just overall, because it is like there's some that are going to represent it and they're 97. You know, they might have this sparkle of this beauty that a 20 year old who's never done that yeah. wouldn't have. So I'm just wondering, like when you are looking, you're now knowing what you're looking for. Um, uh, yeah. So there's I, a thing I, you're like, that's the one or like uh, you got all the things, but it doesn't feel right. Well, yeah, let, let me also say, David, you know, let me also say that we've assembled a really strong creative team. So, you know, we have a choreographer who certainly understands and has worked with showgirls and and non-showgirl dancers here in Vegas. So when you come when you combine what David's looking for and you make sure that his vision is mind melded with the choreographer, with yeah. Luann, you know, with other, frankly, other showgirls who, when we talked to them about this project, said, you know who else you should be talking to? You should be talking to this person because they have the kind of aesthetic that you're looking for. I would say that's how it happened. It was definitely not a cattle call. And we've certainly had people reach out to us saying we would love to be involved in this. But it was more... Um, was more insular, I guess I would say, mm -hmm. than that. Really taking the strong direction of David at the lead, then with certain key creative team members who were able to help us filter that to make sure that we had the best, brightest, and the right fit. <sighs> yeah. So where are you now in, because it, it opens in April, so I would talk about dates, and I know, like I've told you, I'm been talking to Dita Montes about her show at Jubilee, which is interesting because there's people so supportive that are from the Bluebell and the, and all the Vegas because they get to see Don um, Don Arden esque mm -hmm. um, aesthetic, but also like Pete Menifee and Bob Mackey's costumes. And some are not having it; they are not happy about that. They don't think burlesque should get to wear those costumes. And I've been watching this on both sides, and so I reached out to her and said, "I would love to hear your and story." We've heard that. We've we've heard yes. that. Yeah. And so it is, it's kind of a delicate thing to take on, but we're like, all these customers have been in a basement. So to see them come to life and she has been listening to my podcast, which made me feel so happy. She, I want to know, like she wants to learn this. And she started because of the Bob Mackey's she's wearing Bob Mackey costume. So she listened to that interview. Then she's just started listening to more. So that made me happy that she wants to know the why, who the stories and all that. It's like, she's honoring what she's wearing, but it's a hard thing because I danced in the eighties. I would love to have done the shows from the sixties, but I like that ours was a little more contemporary, but that looks dated compared to the Lido in Paris. I mean, which the reunion, some of those older gals were not very, <laughs> they didn't give it much of a chance. They were just so offended that there weren't more feathers or it wasn't done the way they did it. And I understand that attachment to the way things were, but things evolve and it's hard because you can't please everybody. I love the show that closed in Paris last year. It was more contemporary. And for some people, they they just they didn't like it at all. And so they could have their opinion. And then I went to the, we all went to the Moulin Rouge, which I liked, but I preferred the updated. But it's hard. It's hard because nobody's going to be loving everything. Um, so I, anyway, so the whole thing about Dita, I wanted to make a, sort of a bridge and just hear her story and the why. And some people are going to love it. Some are not going to go. But the ones who are giving it a chance are actually really loving seeing it on the stage again. So I'm working it out to come down because she's going to do an interview with me on Zoom and then go backstage. And we I talked about doing a showgirl class about the essence of it. She's so open to that. So I'm trying to make this trip where I can come down 
and either be there for the rehearsal for yours or, or for opening or something. Cause I want to celebrate it and I want to take pictures and I want to get this out in our community to say, look what is happening. And so I know, like, I know something's coming as far as rehearsals, but we're in January rehearsal starting. So what, what is your next trajectory to get you to can, opening? Can I just make a comment back to what you were saying before about, you know, some of the, maybe some of the controversy and I'm not, I'm not going to weigh in on one side or the other about that, but except to, except to say in general, there's such a dichotomy because I think if you ask the average person that does not live in Las Vegas, if, if when they go to Las Vegas, they'll be able to see tons of shows that have showgirls in them, they would tell you, yes, they, the absolute, because, you know, as our choreographer mentioned at one point, she said, you know, the showgirl is the heartbeat of Las Vegas. But we also know, sadly or not, that we also live in a city that continues to reinvent itself, right? Mm. The, Vegas of, the Vegas of today is not the Vegas of 2010, is not the Vegas of, of 1980. So, you know, in general, I'll just say this. For me, you know, I'm not going to get into the debate about burlesque and showgirls. I'll just say anything that even resembles helping to celebrate the legacy of the showgirl even if somebody th thinks it's one thing and it's a little bit misplaced i'm still celebrating it because the mm. showgirl are the heartbeat of this city and you know follies unfortunately you know on april the 15th this production won't be here anymore we will do six shows from the 11th to the 14th um you know and and then what i'm hoping from it is that it brings about in some form or fashion a renewed interest once again in showgirls that says, hey, guess what? There are unique things, even if they aren't long-term shows that last for years, but this is still a huge part of our history and our heartbeat that needs to be continued and celebrated. So um, we can't change the whole infrastructure for a city that continues to reinvent itself, but you know what? We can bring back this piece of it and we can do what we can to make sure that the showgirls and the history of this city and their impact on this culture and the world is celebrated the way it should be. Yes. Yeah, and and Sherry, if if your listeners would like more information or like to read the biographies of some of our legendary showgirls, our website is showgirlscomehome.com. Right. Showgirls with an S. Showgirlscomehome.com. Yeah, and, and they can read and see pictures and photos of everyone involved in the production and just these long resumes of, of, of what these people have done. It's it's extraordinary. Wow. Oh, and Sherry, I got to tell you one more thing. Um, so we had our big company, first company meeting at the home of Cindy Domaney, who is very influential. Her family, you know, had a they ran the Tropicana for a while. They built La Concha, all of these different things. And Cindy was a showgirl as well. And I will tell you that the number one thing we heard from the legendary showgirls who were there that night, where they said to us, this felt just like when we used to sit in the first meeting for a new show on the strip and we were all so excited about, and here's what it's going to be. And here's what the costumes are going to be like. And I know for a fact, because they've said it to us, none of them thought that they would ever be in this circumstance again. And they're so excited and we are triply excited to have them wow. with us on this journey. This yeah. is so, this is, 
I think if I'd known and I was going to come see it, hearing the backstory makes me just even more excited of where you guys are coming from. And yeah, this is good. People listening to this and there's so many still in Vegas that would want to come see this because it is like brings your heart back to why this was unique and beautiful. Yeah. So have you started rehearsals actually like, and how, what is that process? Like the choreography first, so, you know, like working with your leads and when you bring in the rest of them. Uh, first, first one is that there's a big dance number called mirror mirror. And that's the first thing we're rehearsing, but also we're getting the music and lyrics under everybody's belt so that when we do stage, you know, they're kind of comfortable with where they are musically. So there, that's kind of what's going on. The, the initial dance rehearsals and the initial music rehearsals, just mm. learning it's difficult score. Yeah. And then, you know, it, it is, we're, we're fortunate that this show is a little, even though it's so big, it's a little bit easier to rehearse because it's very compartmentalized. You know, there are moments when it's about the legendary showgirls and that number. Then there's maybe a lead that has an individual solo, like a Follies again. And then there are two people that have a number together. And then there are eight people that have a number together. So um, we're lucky in the sense that there are not, unlike the amazing shows on the strip that featured showgirls there are not 16 massive production numbers in them which would make it even more challenging it still is rewarding musically and theatrically but it makes it a little bit easier since we are dealing with so many different people yeah which is weird me i'm 64 i teach showgirl classes most of the time i don't put my heels on because your feet change and i could I had two shows a night, three shows on Saturday and one theater. I could run in heels. Now I put them on and I'm like, I can make it two minutes. So the thought of getting to be on stage and do it, like, oh, I have to put heels on. I would have to like build up. So I'm just curious if that's come up because that's where my brain went because I love showgirl styles and I usually like have my young ones put their heels on. I'm like, look at them. I'm going to be barefoot because I can't even buckle my shoe because the way my hip is. <laughs> so it's a weird, it's a thing to think of like 97, she's going to stick heels on. Well, yes, it's funny what we've heard from our legendary showgirls, virtually every one of them is I've shrunk. I was six yeah. two. I'm only six. You know, yeah. like that, you know, where they've lost a little bit of height over the years, you know, a little bone loss, I guess. But but pretty I had three people come up to me and say, you know, I was six two, you know, or or things are six one, or you know, but I, I've just lost a little bit of the height, you know. So that's an interesting phenomenon too. Yeah. Well, and I think and I think I think it's also um just mentally for for folks particularly folks who are who are um older that this is not an open-ended run that's going for the next right i can get through you, 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 you do this you do your best you knock them out of their seats for six performances and then you say okay now i'm gonna rest again for a little while then i'm gonna find something else to do it might inspire them to keep doing it like for Absolutely. you this is a lot of work for six shows which i've learned covid kind of changed that for me because i was like what's the next thing or it's like, just do this one thing and be passionate about this one thing. If it runs six days only, it's going to be everything instead of like, how do I milk this? Yeah. What is this like, if this is a one-time thing and like, if it takes off and it wants to go somewhere, is that even something you want? Not David. sure. <laughs> yeah. It's, wait till you get there. Can we take a wait and see on that? <laughs> yeah. Because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work because a lot of times people invest like, you know, a Don Arden show, this is going to run for years. So Right. The the budget and the amount of work, but like I'm doing all this work for six 
shows because it matters is a really different kind of mindset. Here, here's, yeah, well, and, here's and the, and the talent and our, our the, the casting, you know, all these people have other things and other gigs yeah. and, you know, right. Cliff, Clinton Holmes tours and, you know, so it, it was kind of hard getting everyone together and including, you know, a lot of the shows later, you know, I, um, uh, and, a, and a lot of your listeners know in their later years, there wasn't a full orchestra anymore. It was all yeah. for the Follies. We're using a 26 piece orchestra. So, you know, that's coordinating it all is really hard for a longer run or a tour, I think. But, you know, I'm not saying it, it wouldn't be impossible, but I love the fact, too, that we're not using tracks, that we're bringing back that feel, which I think was yeah. part of the classic Vegas Follies shows. Mm. That was and, Hello, and Hollywood, Hello. We had a live orchestra for a while. And as yeah. the show went on, the budget changed that became recorded. But I don't I that was a privilege that not that many of those big shows really got to hang on to. Well, so and did I, you, I did you appear say, on the, uh, the the wing of a plane? I did. <laughs> right wing girl three from the right. <laughs> I, I do want to say that, um, no, our intention at this moment is not. It's not in the plans to say, where do we go with follies from here? What our intention is, if you said, well, what does success look like for us? You know, if we were all doing this wrap up the day after follies closes, it's that we have all, and I'm including the audience members, we have all been given this incredible gift to be magically touched again by this production. And there will be nobody, whether you are a musician, whether you're a showgirl, a young showgirl, a legendary showgirl, a lead, a dancer, an audience member of someone on the creative team that will not be forever touched and changed mm -hmm. by being touched by this production. That is success for us, whether it never sees another breath of life after the 14th. If it does, then it was meant to be. If not, then we will change the lives of the four to 5,000 people who are touched by it. And we will all be able to say years later, I was there and I saw the Vegas wow. premiere of Follies. So the theater is crucial because, you know, those big showrooms, you're not going to put it at the Jubilee Theater probably, but finding the space that can still make it feel like it's timeless. Like what was that? And, and where is that? Cause we also want to talk about tickets and the opening night, which I heard is black tie. So I'm like, I'm trying to figure out when I'm coming down there, if it's a rehearsal of the show, because I don't think I can do it twice. So I have to really figure out how I'm going to do this. I want to be there to, for the aren't excitement. You, aren't you just camping out in the lobby? Isn't that right? Sure. 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 <laughs> that's what I thought. You're not going to, I'm just going to bring a pillow. I'm not going <laughs> to miss this. I need to be there. So that's why I'm trying to, plan this but yeah i'm just curious as far as like uh the theater getting that ready like sets and all that and then what opening and how people get tickets and the, i love that it's black tie you're making it's a big deal well, get David, dressed up. we know. don't do we don't get dressed up for theater anymore huh? we need to get that feeling back of what it's like to make an effort to put a little sparkle on to go see a show it's david funny. do you want to do you want to yeah, talk about aliante and neat and yeah. the Neat museum too yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. So uh, we looked at 13 venues. And the funny thing is we looked at the trop, the Tropicana, thinking, wow, if they're going to tear it down, wouldn't it be great if the last production in their showroom was Follies about a theater being torn down? Well, no, they weren't interested. They're just interested in clearing out everybody and, and, and getting the thing done with and imploded. 
And but and that that was the way with some of the showrooms that we went into. They weren't really sure that they were going to continue with necessarily a full entertainment policy. So we encountered that. What we mm. did have really good luck with, and it's not maybe what you would think of as a traditional venue for uh, a theater event like this, but is Aliante, which is in North Las Vegas. It's a little bit off the strip. It's owned by uh, Boyd Gaming, and, and they have been terrific with us. Um, it's like a 587-seat house, very, very wide stage. It's 55, 50 feet wide. Um, so for all the showgirl lineups and kick lines and all that, we're going to have a, a lot of fun to playing with that. And, uh, and, and that's where it is. And it's a wonderful, uh, it's a smaller hotel, but it's a hotel and, and um, spa and casino um, right there. And it very much has that feeling of a, the, a traditional Vegas showroom. There are mm. some banquets and there are some tables. Most of the seating is just theater chairs. Um, but it, it does give us, you know, very much that feeling. And so, yeah, that's where the performances are, are going to be taken uh, place. But also I wanted to mention, because you mentioned it earlier, one of our historic, our historic advisor is the Neon Museum. And the new Neon Museum is helping us with some pieces to dress the set with some of the traditional neon from some of the Vegas um, resorts that have been imploded. Oh so, my gosh. I know it gets better, right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And so there, there's, there's not a, at least the one I saw, I saw Kennedy Center. Are there like staircases? I mean, which we kind of think more Vegas show girl, there's always a staircase, but also that's probably a tricky thing to do. Also, if you've got older gals coming down stairs in heels and costumes, but I don't know, like it could be anything you want to create this look of it. We do have a staircase. Absolutely. And we actually have the orchestra on stage. So they're split by um, a, 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 a grand staircase. Absolutely. Yeah. So wow. there will there will be a parade. There'll be a couple of them, actually. Yeah. And we'll be using a lot of visuals, a lot of projections um, that also help atmospherically with where you are and what the mood of the piece or, the, or that particular moment in the show is as well. And there's, you know, from mentioning Sue earlier about the, with the UNLV Special Archives collection and the collection that the Neon Museum has of, of photographs, um, great way to tap in to make sure that this is very Vegas centric and that it feels mm -hmm. that way. And by the way, don't think for a second that with that when each of the individual legendary showgirls comes down the stairs that we won't have pictures up of their younger selves uh, so that everybody can see them in oh, all man. their grand today and yesterday. And, and, amazing. and just to follow up, tickets are on sale now, right, Tom? Yes, yes. And best way is uh, with all the information about um, dates and times and prices and all that sort of stuff is to go to our website, Showgirls comehome.com it links you through to ticketmaster which is the uh ticketing agency that boyd gaming uses so but yeah they're on sale now they're already selling and it's uh follies because we're after the first of the year now and a lot more of our marketing and press push is starting it's kind of blowing up on social media so these shows will all sell out so i strongly encourage people we're not you know and I, this is just a vegas thing but i'll just say it we're not ever going to discount tickets to this show. So there. So if somebody says, I'm just going to wait because I'm sure they're going to be a bunch of, you know, discounted tickets, it won't happen. So it's better mm. it's better to get them now and also not to get shut out because we literally have 587 seats times six 
and that's all we have. Um, and and that's what the show run will be, and that's how many people will be able to see it. Mm. And I don't know, I don't know, Sherry, if this changes your mind or not. But if you come on Friday night, not all your listeners, but you <laughs> are invited <laughs> to our cast party, and it's at the Liberace Mansion. Oh my! Okay, what date is that? That's April. That the well, opening that that Friday is that the black the tie after event? opening. That's the non-black tie. It's the, the black tie is Thursday, April eleventh. The next night on Friday, uh, the shows uh, the show that after that show we are doing a party with the cast at the Liberace Mansion, and they are wonderful partners of ours. Oh, I, that that's the ticket I might need to do. I so think you know so. what? Then we'll all okay. go and dance around Liberace's bathtub. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> As we should. It's like that brings back the memories too of the like the ones that danced a bit. You do the shows, but there was like we were hanging out with celebrities, or yeah. it was just such a different life. And like I talked to my younger dancers, they have no. It's hard to even explain to them. That's why I think I'm, like seeing it in a musical, like seeing what it was to be on stage but what your life was like living in vegas i always ask that from those who danced in paris is different than those that danced in vegas like what was yeah. it like living in the middle of the desert in the 50s is different than it was in the 80s and then it was very you know celebrities in the audience and people going out with elvis and it's like wait this is crazy that that was just monday you know that was just a regular day in vegas <laughs> hey, you'll, you'll, love, you'll, you'll love this one of our showgirls started in show business over at the Hilton, selling pencils and teddy bears for Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis. And oh she's gosh. in the show. <laughs> really? Oh, my gosh. Okay, and so it, I'm going to put the links in here so yes. people and can, can I look at one more thing, Sherry. Yes. Yeah, also, we're talking about, you know, just how, how all of the stars have aligned for this. No pun intended. So <laughs> we go. So David goes back and looks. And in the late 70s at the Hilton, who is on stage with Liberace, but Andrea McArdle and Sandy after Annie. So having Andrea McArdle back at the Liberace mansion and part of this cast, it's like, are there any other places where this thing can like dovetail to, for, for the, for the uh, spirit? Oh, I froze there for to a second. Tell us that we're supposed to be doing this. I hope so. No, this is the timing yeah. on so, so many levels is amazing. So, so, so. And while they were still alive, you know, like we're, I just like doing this podcast, how many we have lost, especially with the AIDS, but we were talking about like just that time in history in Vegas, especially that's what most of our community of our male dancers were gay. And so like, it was nobody and that does, wasn't part of that. And like my young dancers too, they're not, they don't get what that was like to come in mm -hmm. or to go to dance class and people are missing. And so We've already lost them then. And then as we're getting older, I've had interviews that I'm like, thank God I got their story while they were still here. Like it feels this generation, there's nothing coming up underneath us. And so the telling of the stories is so important. And then to do it in the way that musical theater does it, like nothing else is different than reading a book. You get to feel it and yeah, hear and the heart behind it. I told, you know our, our I told our younger dancers, I said, if you guys don't listen to these stories and learn from these legends, you are losing out on a huge opportunity. Because when do you get this many performers with this many hundreds of years of experience in a room together and get to work on a show together? So I said, you guys take notes. You ask them. Buy them a drink after rehearsal and, and ask them what it was like, you know. And, and, and it's funny seeing the young dancers forge with some of the... Uh, legendary uh, performers. It's it's very cool. That's amazing. And, 
And Sherry, you know, you mentioned about just the reality of losing folks as they get older, you know, um, just based upon if people go back and listen to this podcast, you know, years from now, you know, we're sitting kind of around, um, you know, around uh, the 12th, 13th of Jan 12th of January in 2024. But, you know, we fully intended to have Shecky Green involved in this project in some way, whether it was interaction uh, or whatever. And we just, you know, Shecky just passed about a week ago. So yeah, we take none of it for granted. And so your point about losing that whole generation over time, it just hit us again, um, which mm -hmm. is why we're so blessed to be doing this right now. Mm. So I'm going to put the links and this will come out. Uh, it's two weeks from yesterday. I do every other Thursday. So I want to get this out there now so we get people to not find out after they could have bought tickets. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we want to do it, they can still buy it. And then I want to reach out if we can get Anna Bailey and some of the, like Luann, get some of the people in the cast to yep. kind of do a lead up to this and then to be down there. And if you're willing to let me do some video and have some photos so people can see the buildup and the celebration celebrate with you. Um, I think that's, that's going to be my focus, but for now and then, and just to however many people from the cast, if you want to hook me up with it, we'll do it because hearing their individual stories and their experience of being part of it, because I would love to hear, you know, Anna Bailey or some of these others that what it's like to come back to this again and feel it, not just in their head, but in their body. There's something when you get on stage and you feel it. When I went to Lido, we did a dance class. It was 20 of it's all they could fit. We were ages 80 to maybe 40. I just did it because that'd be fun. Feeling the lights on me and walking down the staircase, we all were crying because you it wasn't in your head anymore. It was in your body. Like, I remember this. I remember what it was like to look out at the audience and to feel that music fully and to feel my dance partner next to me and to feel that camaraderie. Like, we got to experience it in a different way than just at a reunion talking. And we got to actually, like, feel that again. And it was Yes. beautiful. It was life-changing for me. And that's what got me on the podcast because I'm like, I need to tell these stories because they're standing in line to do the class. I'm hearing these women in their eighties tell their stories. I'm like, I didn't, you know, I just, I'd only known my story and the people I sat next to. I didn't even know their story. We didn't really talk about how we got there. So the podcast was fascinating to me because like, how, how do we get there? Why do we choose this? It like makes no sense in any of our lives why we end up in these shows. You know, it's like, you're tall, you're too tall for this. And you find your way and go, I didn't know this was an option for me as a tall, gangly person <laughs> to have this life and the glamour. And, you know, usually most of us were shy and, you know, too, and mainly the being too tall thing. And to find out there's a place where you get to be a star, which yeah. is the premise that you were like letting them have their moment to shine. Very Zigfield of you. And, and the way this, the script was written is so great because, you know, it's at whatever age you are, you get to experience that again. Those of us in the audience will get to feel it again, too. Yes. And we're going to send you two pictures from Monday night. One is the the bulk of the cast. There were still 12 other people on Zoom, uh, but I'll send you that. And also I'm going to send you a picture of the 12 legendary showgirls. And back to your point about, you know, muscle memory, just look at the way they're all standing and you'll be like, oh my gosh, there they are. It's, it's that, always that, in there. That, they are the showgirls and we can't wait to celebrate them. Oh my gosh. You guys, this has been delightful. It's been um informative but i would say delightful is my word that keeps saying because it's just i'm giddy i'm just so happy this is <laughs> going to be a thing and it's without the pressure this has to be a long-running show because no one wants you know that's like that doesn't have to be that it gets to be this one moment in time to everybody experience it and that's and and and, and uh yeah savor it 
So thank you guys Favorite. for like taking the time to do this. And I'm going to be watching Absolutely. your journey and I want to, I'm going to figure out my flights and all that to be there for the, uh, the cast party at Liberace's and right. Aaron, dance in and around the bathtub. The good news is it's never hard to get a plane ticket to Vegas from wherever you are. It's I'm in, I'm in Seattle. Easy. It's like such a short, because my life is yeah. a little bit too busy, crazy. I'm like, I can get away for two days on an hour and a half flight, not like going to Europe and you got to plan two days of travel. Like Vegas, I can do it. And Absolutely. I'm going to reach out to some bluebells to see who wants to go that same night because it'd be really fun for right. us to come as a group, get dressed up, and then get to celebrate it together. It will be, it'll well, be really fun. You let us know what we can do to help you with that. And additionally, um, you are... I would love for you to just tell, use me as the conduit and just say, here's what I want. I want to talk to Anna. I want to talk to this. I'd like to get three of whatever it is that you want. You tell us and we will make it happen. Yes. I think that's going to be the fun thing is getting to, to get to hear these stories from the ones that you're featuring. So thank you so much. I'm going to ask you one last little thing to, because I always end up with something. I never know what my question is going to be, <laughs> but um, to wrap this up, what has this done for you to enter into this? Like, what has it done for your heart, your soul, anxiety, your anxiety levels <laughs> <laughs> to say, I'm going to do this? Like what, is, what, cause it's a, it's definitely a journey. This isn't like a quick, like, let's throw a show up. This is a big stinking deal. Yeah. We've had almost uh, two years of pre-production. So it's been a, a long journey for us, a lot of research and all of that. But I think it's it's been a joy. And just to know him with my friendship with Steve Sondheim, just to know that we're kind of doing him proud. And yeah. this would be a project, I think, in a, a production that he would be really interested in and intrigued by. Um, that, that does my heart good. Yeah. Mm. And, and I think for me, if I was going to put it into a word, it's honor. Um, we love Vegas. We love Vegas history. Um, we love musicals, we love performers, you know, um, and it's just, it, it sounds so Pollyanna, but it's true. It is such an honor to be able to help make this production come to life and to be able to celebrate this city, its history, the heartbeat of its city, and to do it in such a way that I think is going to be so joyous for so many people. And you know what? I think we all need that right now. Oh, yeah, and, me too. Um, yeah. And to be able to be part of the first of it is it's it is it's an honor. And that's mm -hmm. what I would say. And that we will be forever changed by it. Yeah. You can't do this without affecting you. Uh -huh. One of the things that a few people have said to me, which I didn't know I even needed to hear, was the, from doing the podcast and I put the book together is some couple people said, Miss Bluebell would be so proud. And I just started crying, but it wasn't that I'm doing what I'm doing. And she said, you're bringing community together. Miss Bluebell, you're, yes, you are preserving the showgirl thing, but you are bringing her children, her people back together. And that made me cry. Cause I'm like, I'm not doing this for obviously for money or, or it's or as a achievement. It is like, that's the community part means so much that I see someone's interview come up and their friends see it and hear their story. And then they're talking and they haven't found each other. It's the thing about the bluebell specific is community, but showgirls in general, there is this thing of the legends before us would be proud that we're not just putting on a show that it's about inclusion of all the people that have been a part of it and the beauty of community in this weird world that we lived in. It's, it's very true. And David, what did your slide say? 
uh, one of David's slides in the presentation to the company, I think, said, we stand on all of the shoulders of all the people who came before us, whether you were a Vegas showgirl or whether you were involved with the production of Follies or whether you helped write it or direct it. We stand on all of their shoulders. And, and you know, everything in, in our world is sometimes so ephemeral and so temporary that if we don't do things like this, we will forget. And this is mm -hmm. a way to keep the, the, not only the memory, but the celebration alive, which is what you're doing and what we're doing in our own little small way. And the funny thing is there was never, David and I never had a conversation about should we do it or should we not do it? It was always about we're doing it. No, we yeah. have to do it. We have to do it. There is a mission for us to do this. And we've just been very blessed that the, the stars continue to align to make this an even bigger, better production because somebody somewhere is telling us you got to do this. Oh my gosh. You got to yeah. do it. Just like, just like what you're being told about what you do, we're doing the exact same thing. So I don't think we don't feel like we're pushing anything along. We're just mm. kind of going right along with it and letting, yeah, it, yeah. letting it be amazing. Uh, and not solely because of us, but just because if we're the, if we can be the catalyst for it, that's enough. That's yeah. enough. So I feel like the threads of are being pulled from all the different directions of this that's way bigger than any of us knew. Like we're all around the world. We have different generations, but we have a similar heart. Like, I just feel like there's this thing of there is, and it might be temporary, but there's that overlap that is way bigger than any of us knew what we were, what we're in. It's true. It's true. And we, and follies for, for us is certainly in many, many, many ways, the culmination of that. Well, I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to celebrate with whoever will come with me. So when I launch this, I'll say, who gets their tickets now? Let's meet up beforehand, dress up and take pictures and stand in our showgirl pose out in front of the theater and <laughs> do well, and, all that. And Sherry, let me also say that if for some reason you wind up with a group that you're like, hey, we'd all like to sit together and yet everybody's paying differently or whatever, just coordinate that with me and we can help okay. you with all that. Nobody needs to be sitting. If you want to sit with your friends, you know, we'll make that happen. Okay. So oh, that's good to know. Yeah. It'd be really yeah. fun to just feel that joy all together. You guys, this has been delight. Thank you, David. Thank you, Tom. This was amazing. And I'm so excited to just um, put this out there and we will have connections and links and photos and the buildup. And so, yes, my next thing is after we are done recording, please hook me up with Anna Bailey and anyone else that would do this. And maybe we'll do like two or three more interviews right. one at a time or a couple, because for them to sit together, I yep. love when I do group ones because when they hear each other's story, it's kind of a fun thing Yes, uh, to do it together too, is to hear like parts of people's stories they didn't even know when they're in the same cast. So best so, to you. I'm excited for your you. journey and uh, shine on. Thank you. And Sherry, <laughs> we um, separately, I'll connect with you on Monday or Tuesday and we'll very specifically come up with who you want and then I'll make that happen. Thank you. This is a dream come true. Oh my All gosh. Right. Again, do you ever go, I can't believe I get to do this. That's every time yeah. I do the, like, I can't believe I get to do this. Yeah, it's great. And you know what? We feel the same way about this project. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. All, All right. right. Cheers.